You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Well, I want to invite you now then, as is our custom, to open the Bible with us. We will be in Matthew chapter 7. And so, uh, as a church, we've been walking through this first book of the New Testament. It's the first of the four Gospels. That is literally the good news of the person and work of Jesus. And, and so, Matthew uh, is, is, is in, in this sense, telling us who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. And so, uh, we'll be in the seventh chapter, and we, are fi- we find ourselves in the most famous part of this Gospel. That is, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. You'll even see places here that even if you're not a Christian, if maybe, maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, or maybe you're not sure, you'll even hear some things even today that you've probably heard before, but maybe didn't know where they came from. And they came from Jesus' most famous teaching. This is one of the most examined texts in the history of the world. And here we have in the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapter, this famous sermon that, that opens up Jesus' teaching ministry and, and Matthew wants us to, to see very clearly what's happening. Up to this point, Matthew has introduced us to Jesus by letting us know his lineage, uh, letting us know that he, he's the kind of person who, who takes the place of sinners. Even in his baptism, he was baptized, and even the, the one who baptized Jesus was like, why are you doing this? I should baptize you. You're, you're in my place. And, and then Jesus is first recognized even by, by some outsiders. We call it the Magi, the three wise men that we celebrate at Christmas. And he opens his public ministry on the outside, the outskirts in Galilee, and then now is teaching publicly in a powerful and profound way. Also that Matthew would convince you and I of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to accomplish and, and the amazing power of God at work in Jesus as God has come, as we believe, to, to be with us and for us. And it's even evident in the way that he speaks and teaches, instructs and encourages and so here we are in the last third of this sermon, this most famous thing that has ever been written or ever been recorded. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And so if you don't have a Bible or maybe you don't have an, a device that will get you there, there's a blue paperback Bible in the, in the tray beneath the chair in front of you. I want to invite you to join us there. You'll find, a, don't be afraid of the table of contents. As we open the Bible, we say it regularly, the Bible actually begins to open us. And so this is, a, this is less a, a discovery of just some, something that we want to gain knowledge about. This is more of the Holy Spirit gives us knowledge about the character of God and then our very character in light of that. And so we'll be in chapter 7, the last third of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 and spend our time this morning thinking about and praying about and responding to what Jesus is teaching us here. So beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, 
lest they trample them underfoot and then turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? I pray that in our time together, God would add illumination and blessing and encouragement to the reading of his word here. Don't judge people. Especially not people who are dogs, pigs, or evil. Don't be passing judgment on others, especially those pigs. Don't be judging those pigs. I hope you see, the, in many ways, the rhetorical beauty of Jesus' sermon here. He paints pictures, poetic, metaphorical pictures with words that, that are visceral, that, 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 that demand a response. They catch your attention. We've seen this already up to this point with, with very extreme and powerful language. And here we might find probably the most robust or the most illustrative of, of Jesus speaking high and powerful truths in ways that even a child might be able to understand and imagine. Don't judge. And, and what seems like a paradox in many ways, he says, don't judge, don't pass judgment, don't, don't measure up people in a way that you don't also want to be measured. But on the other hand, be careful on how you offer divine or holy or precious things to people he calls pigs and dogs. Now, the tradition of dogs and pigs shows up later in the gospel, and I'll try as best I can not to, I'll try as best I can to let Matthew tell the story. So, I, uh, in many ways, a lot of the answers to some of our questions we'll even see, especially in verse 6, show up in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus tells another parable about a precious pearl. But I'm, I'm trying to let Matthew do his work here, so that, so that we let him tell the story. So, th- these are visceral and, and powerful, and in many ways, gut-wrenching. And then he tells us about our God again, like you saw in chapter 6, who is a father, who will not withhold any good thing, who hears and responds to his children as they seek and knock and ask. So Jesus turns from what we saw last week, the, the negative attitudes and the negative posture we might have in our own affairs, specifically last week, anxiety and worry that we would trust God rather than worry over these things. I hope this last week you've had a chance to, to do all three, right? To consider the lilies, to consider the birds, and consider the grass. This is a profound season for us to be doing those things as a way to remind us that, that God has sent sermons, right? Even, even as you walk out, like let the dandelions be a sermon that God preaches to you. If he cares for them, he'll care for you. Let the dead birds that you stumble across be a sermon that there's not one that falls apart from God's knowledge and he cares for you. And it may not seem like, it may seem like the world's in chaos, but even the grass, even the beautiful green grass, God is sent to preach a sermon. He cares for you. And that frees us then from anxiety. It begins to allow us to war against what we worry against. 
And so while last week we saw this negative attitude addressed by Jesus toward our own affairs, this week we see that negative attitude addressed that we might have towards others, those we might be inclined to judge, taking the very place of God. And so he points to a bad habit that's all too characteristic of the human race. And then he commands us, negatively even. You'll see all the knots I encourage you to count and meditate upon here. He invites us to consider what it might look like to be less hasty in making negative judgments on other people. He even says that it's a dangerous procedure to judge others. Because in the end, it says here, it invites a similar judgment on ourselves. So if you evaluate others and their actions and decisions without grace, then so also you will be evaluated by God without grace. This sounds similar even, you remember, from the Lord's Prayer where he concludes the the model prayer by saying, "If, if you won't forgive others, then it shows that you don't understand forgiveness yourself and therefore you won't have the forgiveness that God provides. It's also difficult because in the act of judging others ungraciously, apparently he gives a a profound kind of caricature or even a cartoon I would offer because it makes our own faults harder to see and therefore it makes us very imprecise in seeing the faults of others. So Jesus begins with something that many, maybe if you're not a believer, maybe maybe you've you've heard people, if if anyone quotes the Bible out of context, this is probably one of those verses, right? Right? Uh, judge not. Right? Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, you know, like that's like a, if you, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard someone quote the Bible out of context, this is a good one, right? Because, because if you're ever in trouble, if you ever need to justify your actions, you can pull this one out of context and say just that, right? You know, you're caught. Well, judge not. Judge not. You know, who am I to judge, right? But I, I hope you'll see that we're invited to see Jesus' teachings in context. And so he's not saying, of course, that we're forbidden from making any assessments, any moral evaluations. In fact, in John chapter 7, he commands his disciples to judge with righteous judgment. And so he's not saying don't evaluate or criticize any, any actions or behaviors or moral calculations of anyone. Instead, he's warning against a hasty kind of condemnation that it's really easy to make. That when we see others sin we are tempted to believe something about ourselves that's utterly untrue. And so notice, his goal here in this first section, in the first six verses, isn't that he would eliminate all criticism. The goal isn't no criticism. Remember here, the warning, and he calls us by name even from the last chapter and this chapter, the goal is no hypocrisy. Remember that word hypocrisy, it's, it's, from, it's from the language of the theater. Literally, it means to be an actor, right? A hypocrite would have been a person who was a, a person uh, dressed up or playing a part. So he's like, stop putting on a costume. So he's not saying don't evaluate morally your own life and the lives of others. He's saying don't do so trying to wear the robe of judgment that God alone can wear. Don't see the sins and faults in others like a hypocrite would, like a fake. See them with a clear view, as we see here, of of our own sin, of our own blindness that comes from sin, and then our own coldness towards people around us. So let's say maybe there's kind of three big don'ts here 
The first two you see in the first six verses. I think maybe the last don't you see is in the last seven, uh, verses seven through 11. The first big don't is don't be judgmental. The next big don't in verse six is don't be indiscriminate or undiscriminating. And then the last big don't in verse seven beyond is don't be cynical. So we'll start with the first one in the first few verses here. Don't be judgmental. So think of it as when you, when you see the faults and failures of others, which you and I have the innate ability to do, do you discern them in order to love them and to care for them? Do you discern them in order to extend grace to them? In what way, uh, then he offers a paradox, in what way can we both be, in this sense, evaluating critically our own moral actions and the actions of others, but at the same time not being indiscriminate? So, here's my, uh, kind of boil it down to a couple of, I think, axioms that can help us apply Jesus' teaching. I think we see the beauty of Jesus, even in what he's done for us in these 11 verses. First one is this. If you led a gospel community or served in a gospel community, you've probably heard me say this. This is how I kind of summarize, if you want to, where did you get that? This is right out of Matthew chapter 7. Lead with confession. Look how he addresses this judgmental attitude. It says, with the same judgment that you're pronouncing, that's what's going to come back to you. And with the measure that you're measuring towards other, that's what's going to come back to you. So have an idea about the kind of grace that you know you need before you ever begin to evaluate the state of someone else. And then he paints a picture, right? What a, what, it's a cartoon character. I don't even need to explain it. He does it elaborately. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, something small, something tiny, but you don't notice the log that's protruding out of your own eye? Right, that's a cartoon character. How can you say to your brother then, well, hey, let me help you with that little speck in your eye when there is a log protruding out of your own eye? And then what does he do? Calls us, the thing we'd be most terrified to hear, especially from Jesus, you hypocrite. First, take the log, address the log in your own eye, and then you'll begin to see clearly, having addressed your own malady, to then help take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he doesn't say, be paralyzed with an awareness of your own incapacity or your own blindness or your own sin, such that you ignore the sins of others, such that you ignore other people and the things that they are carrying. In fact, he says, you address this first, and then you, you indeed reach to your brother to help. But first and foremost, you lead with an awareness of your own sin. And how, again, comedically, cartoonishly, It makes us look when we don't. Lead with confession. Lead with an awareness of your own need for grace and forgiveness. Because when you judge others and when you believe that their sin is worse than your sin, you're fooled into thinking that since you can see the sin in others, that you have some sort of value or merit or exemption from the demands of righteousness and obedience that God gives to you. Now, no one is saying that there's no judge over what you see that's broken. Jesus is simply saying that you're not it. So th- this ought to be an encouragement and a rebuke to many of us. So start first with what he's already implying about the nature in this, this passive language of judgment. Namely, there is a God who will judge. He will judge righteously. He will judge perfectly. 
There is a judge. And so if you're in this room and maybe you're looking around and you're, you're just seeing the brokenness and injustice in the world, the unfairness, and you're sitting there thinking, like, does anyone care about this? Is anyone going to do anything about this? Then listen to the encouragement Jesus offers. Yes, there is a God and he will return to judge. He will make his way known in Christ as Jesus steps back off of the clouds like the Son of Man, the prophet Daniel tells us, and he will judge everything. He will weigh and measure everything, and he will either measure everything according to the price that he's paid with his own blood, or he will measure with a righteous judgment that God alone can give. Friend, be encouraged. The judgment of God isn't meant to be something that immediately only scares you. It is meant to be something that encourages you. That awful thing that someone did to you, there is a good and loving Father who saw it. And he will not let it go unpunished. It will be paid for. And in this room, in a group of Christians, we have one of two things that we know will happen. Either that sin committed against you or others will be paid for by the blood of Christ out of a sheer act of grace. Or it will be paid for with our own eternity. Don't immediately only be scared by this. Be encouraged. There's no one more angry about that thing you're really angry about than God. But on the other hand, notice, he's saying, since this is one of the most powerful roles that God as a father and creator and judge and redeemer over all of creation occupies, you are not allowed to take his seat. It's not that you aren't to judge. It's that you are never to judge as though you sit in God's judgment seat. Now, there are many different ways to illustrate this in the world, I think, but sometimes the Bible tells the very best stories to illustrate it. And so if you want to, you can join me in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Otherwise, you can just let me read the first few verses. This is a story of what at this time would have been the ideal king, the King David, the most famous and influential king in the history of Israel. And he occupied a throne, and this throne is beautiful. It's amazing, and it's meant to be a, he's meant to be a placeholder for Jesus that would come and take it. And, and in the minute he gets all the power and blessing that God bestows upon him, what does he do with it? He rebels against God's ways. And in this sense, he, while he should have been out fighting the battles with his own troops, he should have been with them, leading them, guiding them, laying down his own life, right? Like, like, like God as a sacrificial and loving king would do. He sends them out to fight his battles, and it says here that he stays back. So his people are off fighting his wars. He's sitting at home. And he's peering off, and he evidently sees a beautiful woman bathing occupying a, a sacred ritual, preparing for a, a sacred time that she would be celebrating. And, and instead of loving and caring for her, he takes advantage of her. He abuses his own role and right as king, the kind of person you can't say no to. Takes her into his own bed. And when she's found to be pregnant, instead of confessing and, and making uh, amends or doing what he could to make it right, he to cover up, he, he has an elaborate plot that, that brings her actual husband into the story and he has him killed to cover up his sin. God, being a good and merciful judge, but also a righteous and wrathful judge, sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to confront him. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord, quite literally says here, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb 
which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But instead he took the poor man's lamb, the one that had been cared for, and welcomed into this poor man's home like a daughter. And he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that's an oath formula, right? Like that's a, I'll be blankety blank if, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. So just stop for one moment, right? David, who has just abused his power to to not only ruin someone's life and marriage, but to take another man's life. Here's a story, a metaphor, a parable, if you will, by the prophet Nathan about a rich man who, who stole this one treasured thing from a poor man. And when he heard the story about this great injustice, what did this lying murderer do? The same thing you and I would do. He was irate. What awful sin. What terrible thing. As surely as the Lord lived, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And the famous words of the prophet Nathan right out of this entire story of First and Second Samuel, Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Do you you get it? Do you hear this story of a man who committed a great atrocious injustice, and yet what was his first response when he heard about the sin of someone else? They're the problem. That's the source of outrage. They're the one we're supposed to be angry at. But but what does Jesus say here? For those of us who have experienced great and mighty grace, we lead with confession, not not accusation. It's as if, in this sense, David hears about this awful sin and and maybe this is too cartoonish, but it's almost like he has something and it makes him not able to see. It's almost like he's blind to it. You might even say it's almost like he has something lodged in his eye. So Jesus is saying it's not that you are not to evaluate moral, uh, moral behavior in your own heart and life and in the lives of others. It's that you're never supposed to do it as though you are God. We always see the sin of others through the lens of our own sin. And so therefore, we lead with confession. Think of it this way. As long as others' sins are greater than your own, then you won't be able to even identify or help anyone with theirs. As long as others' sins are the ones that really are the problem, then you're fooling yourself into thinking that you really are the one who needs to be a recipient of God's grace. Now just stop for a minute and recognize how radical a thing Jesus is saying. Because every single one of us, we can all, it doesn't take any effort 
If I said, imagine an awful thing that someone has done, it takes no effort, zero effort, to think about it and identify it. But if we're not careful, we'll see that, not through the lens of the grace that God has shown you and I and invited us to receive by faith over our own sin, but instead we'll be tempted to see it through our own eyes as though we are God. David saw himself as the moral authority, didn't he? Right? He he quoted the oath formula. As the Lord lives, right? As if to, in many ways, just enhance his hypocrisy. And so it's not that sin should be overlooked. Indeed, it should be addressed. Clearly help your brother take the speck out of your, clearly help take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not that we should overlook sin. It's that God is the one who is good. And God is the one who will make his judgment clear for all to see. Pride makes us think that our sin is small and other people's sin are big. But the gospel flips that on its head and declares quite the opposite. The problem is in you and God has come to make you new. And so as Christians, we having received such immense grace, we don't minimize our sin. And with cartoonish character, absurd character, we bring it into view so that we can help others. We want to make much of God's grace, not ourselves. So last week we saw that not all worrying and concern is created equal. There's a type of concern and worry we saw last week There's a type of anxiety that you might experience that we have no right to express. It's a concern over domains that belong exclusively to God. We begin to be worried about things as though we might have control, and thereby taking God's seat as though we have control over them. But this week we see that there's a type of judgment, a type of critical assessment and evaluation that belongs to God alone. And so you and I are encouraged to judge one another, as it were, concerning matters of wisdom, of discernment, of propriety, modesty, and charity. But you and I are forbidden to judge things that belong to God, namely, the value and state of a human made in his image. I say that because One of the most tempting things is to translate the flaws and failures you see in others and equate them to their value and immediately think, thank God I'm not like that. And this is profound. What a mystery we're invited to consider. Because there's a way to judge things that we ought to judge in one another, good and right things that we ought to help one another to see in the life of the church. But there's a way to do it that assumes a privilege that God alone possesses. So let's say you want to judge or evaluate the behavior of another person. Proceed with a profound awareness of the standard you're imposing. Are you seeing their flaws and failures and sins the way that God has seen them in you because of Christ? Proceed with a profound awareness of your own sin. Don't judge in God's seat. Instead, lead, confessing, knowing. We are called 
to not ignore. That's the other side of this, right? We are called not to ignore sin and brokenness in the world. We're not to sit back in silent complicity, complicity as, though it's, as though it's okay, but inside we're, we're to say so, we're to call it out as those who have been delivered from even worse. This is a challenge, isn't it? It's so easy to look at atrocious things that happen in the world around us and immediately think, I would never do that. This morning is an example of that, right? We woke up, there's not a weekend in the last six months that we haven't woken up to news on the weekend of awful violence. And we saw, what, even just this morning, I saw last, last night in Buffalo, someone out of hate, out of white supremacy, killed some people at a grocery store. I, I can't think of something more atrocious, but notice the temptation. There's something in us that goes like, I'd never do that. I'd never, I'd never value myself so much that I would dehumanize others. And the devil's got you right there. Because in that moment, you think someone else needs more grace than you. In that moment, you devalue what Christ has done. I thank God that I'm not like them. Notice, notice this temptation is all around us, close and far, to think to ourselves, God has actually loved me because I'm somewhat special, not because he is gracious. And one of the ways that creeps in is when we look at the sins of others and think, that's a problem. So, what do we get here? It's not that we don't pass judgment. It's not that we don't judge the sins of others, especially those of those we love in the life of the church. But instead, we don't take the seed of God, but we do so in a way that we're aware of our own sin even to a greater degree that we're aware of the sin of others. Because after all, if you're not, then you can't even see, Jesus says here, you're blind to it. You're a hypocrite. You're doing a God impersonation. You're dressing up like God. You're jumping into his judgment seat and pretending you somehow belong there. When you and I both know in our own sin, we don't. And like David was blinded, so also, when we think for a minute we don't need this kind of grace, we are incapable of extending it to others. And so therefore, he says, we condemn them. But then we get to verse 6, where he gives the other side, doesn't he? Okay, don't, don't judge people in their sin, but then he does something paradoxical, right? Don't give divine or precious things, right? Don't judge people except for the pigs and the dogs, Right? You're like, oh, okay, Jesus, what do you mean? Right? Well, think of it as this is just a beautiful tactic that Jesus, as a wonderful, authoritative teacher, uses to make sure that not a single one of us gets to walk away going, like, oh, yeah, I've nailed it. Right? Because maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you're the kind of person who, uh, maybe you're like, I have no problem not judging people. Right? And so for you, your problem is that you have apathy. You, you, you probably don't care at all. You, you, you probably don't see sin as it is in the world at all a log in your own eye. And, and that would lead you, like verse 6, to be the kind of person who sees God's work in the world and then begins to just live indiscriminately, without any discernment. And Jesus says, to see his kingdom rightly, to experience the kind of thing that Jesus has come to accomplish, will actually poke both. It, it will make us, those of us who are prone to judgment, it will make us convicted and realize that we've been forgiven of so much. But those of us who are prone to apathy and just say, hey, man, they're not hurting anybody, right? He says, no, like there is something divine. There is something right. And that, is, that, that kind of action is, a, is an evidence of their nature. So I think there's probably three different things we see here in this one verse. 
One, you see the nature of those who have not seen the gospel, the nature of those of us who have been blinded, have not our eyes open to the mercy of God in Christ. Two, you see the way those of us who have seen the gospel are to pass it on. And then lastly, you see the way that we are to receive truth. If I were to say it this way, we're to have a new nature. Two, don't be a jerk. Three, discern receptivity in others for divine things. And four, don't be a pig. Let me see if I can kind of unpack those. In here, you'll find a theme that is carried out for the rest of the New Testament. The nature of the gospel is not that God has come to make people better. He has not come to make you a better person. God has sent Jesus to make dead people alive. He has come to make things that are dead and decaying and rotten and hopeless into his very children invited and adopted into his very household, complete with his comfort, care, and inheritance, all of it. And so the nature we find here of people who have not heard and received this, he says it's different from the nature of the people who have. And he goes to great, like, goes to great lengths to illustrate. He says, in a sense, the people who don't hear this divine good news of Jesus are equated with dogs and pigs, unclean animals for this particular, right? You, you, can't, hear this, you can't hear this through the kind of the sanitized Western view of, of pets, right? That's not what he's saying. He said, these are, these are unclean animals that scavenge, that live off their own filth. And he says, then why would you throw divine things, treasure, pearls, he says, before the pigs? So the other side of the coin is that we begin to realize that for those of us who have heard this good news and been changed by it, we are not the same. He is speaking about the nature of, the nature of humanity apart from the gospel. Now, this is a theme, as I'll share with you, all across the New Testament. I'll give you my favorite example of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul is encouraging the, first, the church in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, for the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. Did you hear that? The good news of what God has done for us, the, the good news of God's love will, for those of us, maybe if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, it will seem foolish. And here's what I, I, I try as best I can to remind you of how important that is. We should never, ever, ever think that gathering on a Sunday morning, like relishing in God's love and grace for us in Christ is normal. Like never get over how stupid this looks. Don't, don't play it down. Don't dismiss it. Like that you would sit here for an hour while someone talks about God? It's ridiculous. And if, any of, if you know anyone who's like, that's silly, I'm not into that. Be like, I don't blame you. That's foolish. If the God of the universe hadn't come to be with me and for me in Christ, take all my sin and then be raised victoriously over it, I wouldn't do it either. So never get over how ridiculous it is that we're doing. It is that we do what we do. Our eyes have been opened to something that, that if you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian, I don't, I don't want to at all dismiss how foolish we certainly look. In fact, I want you to press into it. I want you to lean right into it. Why would these people do this ridiculous thing? You believe what? It's foolishness. It's as foolish as maybe, I don't know, a pig would think a pearl is. Think of it this way. Pearls don't satisfy any natural appetites. Right? A dog or a pig knows what it wants. 
has a natural appetite. And if you throw it something like a pearl, of course, he says, they're going to trample it. They're going to, in fact, I love that one commentator put it this way. They're going to realize how inedible the pearl is and realize you're more edible than the pearl. So they're going to, they're going to turn from the pearl and bite you. And you're like, well, okay, I can't eat that. I'll eat you. But notice the miraculous thing going on here. The very nature of a person or creature in this case must change in order to, for it to value things rightly. A dog, you cannot, you cannot train a dog or a pig to understand a pearl. It is outside of its nature. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. If we've been listening to, if we, right, if we've been listening to Jesus up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, that shouldn't surprise us. Not just a chapter ago, he demanded that you and I live a righteous life, perfect righteousness demanded by the Father, greater than the greatest righteousness you can imagine. And you ought to hear that, right? And as Jesus says, I need you to be perfect, like God your Father is perfect. And every single one of us who hears that rightly goes like, that's not in my nature, man. That's outside my nature. I can't do that. And Jesus says, I know. What I've come is to make you new. What I've come to do is to resurrect you to make you into something new change your very nature so first we're invited to consider what it really means to have heard and understood who god is and what god has done for us in jesus and realize that it doesn't just clean us up it turns us into something new and so therefore this also helps us understand mission this helps us understand as christians how we are to interact with people who are not we're not shocked Right? That's, that's one of the weirdest things. When, when Christians are outraged that people who are not Christians don't act like Christians. It's like, and again, this is a theme that you see for the rest of the Bible. That, that in this sense, we are called to be something because, what, because of what God has done and opened our eyes to that, that many people have yet to see and understand. And so, even even tells the, the church later, uh, it, the first Corinthian church, or, or first, there's only one Corinthian church, the first letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 5, he, he says, I'm writing to you for you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, right? They call themselves Christian or insider, but if, if they're guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, or not even to eat with such a one. Well, why does he do that? At this time, there was a person living in such a way, he says, that I want them to be handed over, like expel them from your presence in order to hand them over to Satan so that their soul, their spirit might be saved. And so you're thinking, well, so we just like expel everyone who does this? No, you do so in order to, in this sense, draw people to experience repentance by feeling the weight of their sin. And so, what does he say in verse 12? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the, excuse me, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So, did you hear that? He's, he's saying like, He's illustrating it in a profound way what it is that Jesus is saying here. The people who have had their nature changed, we deal with differently. You and I relate to one another differently than we do with pigs and, pigs and dogs, right? Now, this shouldn't be seen as an insult. If you're not a Christian and Jesus calls you a pig and dog, hang on. Later, he's going to introduce us to a woman who he calls a dog and she ends up being one of the, she ends up in, 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 the, in the Gospel of Matthew, she ends up being the one person who gets it. She's, it's so weird. In all the religious elite, nobody gets it. It's the, the woman, he says, like, she's like, well, hey, man, feed me like, I, mean, I could be a dog. Just let me get some scraps off the master's table. And, and her faith is the one that's, that's praised by Jesus. So, so don't be insulted by that, but instead realize that in light of our sin, we don't have a nature 
to be righteous. God has to change it. And so therefore, even as we see others who have not understood the gospel, we don't, as he says here, we don't, we don't pass judgment on those outsiders. We have love and care for them. We present it to them in a way that they can handle. Here's the next thing you see. If understanding our nature is a part of what Jesus is teaching here, those who accept and are changed to receive divine things. The second thing is essentially, don't be a jerk. Discern the receptivity of others for divine things. Notice, he says that it's not just that he's like criticizing us for like indiscriminately being aware of what God's doing around us. He's also saying, if you're going to give a special and divine and precious thing to someone, give it to them in a way that they can digest. Because on one hand, as foolish as the gospel is, as offensive as the gospel, I mean, just think about like how offensive it is. Every single Sunday, I stand up here and I say to a bunch of people, you are so rotten, so sinful, so repulsive in the sight of God that unless he sent his perfect, spotless, sinless son to take your place, you will spend eternity being punished apart from him. That's awful. So on one hand, we never apologize for that, but sometimes we're jerks. And we do apologize for that. You can't, you can't ground the edges off the gospel, but you can grind the edges off of our rough and, and cold selves, right? And so he's saying, don't offer something that's precious, the love and grace of God in Jesus, in a way that people can't digest. And so this is where we have to walk with a ton of humility, don't we? Regularly realizing, hey man, Already, it's going to seem foolish, right? It's already going to seem foolish, but don't make it worse. <laughs> and so Christians in this, are, in this way are meant to hear this good news of Jesus and pass it on to people in ways that they can digest, knowing that sometimes they're still going to reject it, knowing that the change of nature that's required for us to digest spiritual and divine things is something God alone can do. God, by his mercy and grace alone, can do these things. And yet we're called to live in such a way that takes responsibility, as you see here, for offering things to people in a way that they can digest. Here's lastly. For those of us maybe who hear this, don't be a pig. Let me put it this way. Do you bite at people who offer you divine truth? Do you snap at people do you become defensive? Do you feel attacked when your sin comes to light? Then, friend, begin to realize that God's going to have to change your nature. Do you regularly see the sins of others and think that they're more deserving of judgment than your own, such that when your sin does come to light, you're, you're defensive and you lash back? Well, then, one hand, Jesus says, don't be a pig. On the other hand, you and I both know I can't change my nature. What do I do? I'm glad you asked. Verse 7 through 11 answers. You ask God for it. You seek from God what God alone can give. And then, man, he, wow, he almost goes on a tirade here, doesn't he? If the first don'ts were don't be judgmental, and the second don't, we saw it was don't be indiscriminate. The third don't is don't be cynical. 
Now, for some of you who hear this with the ears of faith, this is an encouragement for you. But maybe if you're like me in this room and you're prone to be more cynical, you're prone to see the, the circumstances of the world more than the goodness of God as Father, this is, this, is a, this is a provocative statement. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Already, for those of you maybe like you have doubt and cynicism in your own heart, that's, that's hard to digest, isn't it? I just ask God? I just seek and God's going to give it to me? Well, yes and yes. On one hand, yes, he will offer everything that we need. And yet, the way he's going to do it, we're invited to see the same picture we saw in chapter 6. He will answer those things like a loving parent. And he even draws attention to us, doesn't he? Like, which of you, if your son or daughter asks you for bread, you're going to give them a stone, right? Or even if they ask for a fish, you're going to give them a snake or a serpent. If you then, and this is profound, who are evil... Right, this is a biblical worldview that I want to invite you to consider. Like, uh, most of the narratives that are kind of like surrounding us are that people are inherently good, and if they just kind of look inside themselves and discover themselves and express themselves, things will go great. And the only evidence against that is, I don't know, the world. So, like, so notice what he says here. The way that the Bible frames it is not that we're good people just trying to figure it out. It's that we are dead and sinful people who are hopeless, who need life. And left to our own devices, we will do what is intrinsic to us, namely evil. But even then, did you hear that? Even then, we carry the image of God. You and I are created in God's image. That's what makes us so valuable as humans. And so therefore, even even in in our depravity, as we'll call it, even in our sinfulness, even evil parents mirror or image something that's good. And if you, even an evil mom or dad, isn't going to do this, They will image something. Then how much more, he asks, will your Father in heaven give good things to those who asked him? So let me speak to the cynic in the room again. It's not that God is going to give you and I everything we want. It's that God is only going to give us what is good. So he says, ask. Ask. Ask with persistence. Ask like a child would ask. Right? Ask like a, like a child who doesn't even know what they're asking for. Asking for ponies and mansions, right? And roller coasters. I'm just listing some of the things that I've been asked for. Can we have one of those? Daddy, can we have one of those? No. <laughs> and if even I, who am evil, can sort of approximate a desire for what's best for my children, then friend, how much more would a loving father who is righteous and good? So this is the hard thing to believe, right? There are things in your life and in the world that you and I have asked God for that we have not received. Two things. One, keep asking. Keep asking. Keep asking. I have good news for you because I know that Christ will come back and make all things new. He will give you all that your heart's desires. It may not be on your timeline. That's even not the right way to say it. It will definitely not be on your timeline. (laughs) I say that with tears even. It won't be like you want it and when you want it. 
but we're invited to consider something amazing. What if we're wrong? What if God has something that's better? Here's the second thing. See those requests like a child would see a father. A good father hopefully will explain, right? Hey, here's why we're not getting a pony. Um, here are the things you can ask for that are better. Um, here's why. Friend, in time, God, who is our good and loving Father, will explain and make plain to all of us all the things, all the mysteries, all the questions, all the ones we have. So I know, friend, this doesn't make your questions go away. It doesn't. You and I are called to lament the sin and the brokenness and pain and suffering that exists in our own hearts, in our families, in our city, and in the world. We're never meant to diminish those things. We're never meant to dismiss them. But instead, we're meant to realize that what God has promised is a good, as, as, as a good father is that those things will never get the last word. Those things cry out evil and bad, and God the Father in Christ declares good. What he's working is good. So, ask, ask. Why would you ask? Why would you look to God and think that God can fix this? Well, I think the picture of the kingdom is seen here. The kingdom as a, a precious pearl cast before swine. Friend, consider the mystery and why you should ask the Father and trust that he'll give you what's good. In the end, Jesus is the precious pearl who was cast to the swine. In the end, he was the one cast to the dogs. Why? in order to show us the goodness and generosity of the Father. In order to show us the goodness and the generosity of God. John 14 says it this way. Jesus says to his, to his disciples, Have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? And, and he says, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say then, show us the Father. And, and Philip responds and says, just before you leave, before we go, he just says, please don't leave until you've shown us the Father. And what is Jesus' response? If you've seen me, you know what the Father's like. Do you hear that echoing? Do you see Jesus as the perfect and righteous and spotless Savior who is cast out to people who could neither digest but also not receive and would reject him? They would betray him, hang him on a cross? Do you see what the Father's like? The Father who takes pigs who wallow in their own filth. The Father who takes dogs who eat their, you, their own you-know-what. And he makes them sons and daughters gleefully. And when you see that, and when you realize that, you see the Father rightly. And when you realize that God would send his own son even to those who would reject him, you begin to realize we have a good father. Oh, certainly, maybe he doesn't give the things that you and I really wish we could have, but friend, he won't withhold them. He won't withhold them. So friend, do you know God is a good and generous father? When you think about God, do you think about a good parent who cares for you and wants what's best? Because I promise you, the circumstances in your life will say the opposite. You may have a vague belief in God, but friend, even if you intellectually assent to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, if you don't know him and trust him as a good and generous father, then you of all people are without hope. Friend, look to Jesus. 
seeing him being offered up on our behalf, see him like a precious pearl being cast for those who didn't deserve it and by nature would reject it, and see him gladly giving himself for those who couldn't understand, digest, or receive him in order to what? To make them new, in order to make them like himself. See Jesus as the one who crawled into the muck and mire of the pigs to make them clean, righteous, and pure. And friend, once you know that, once you've seen that beauty, once you've seen that pearl, once you see that kind of extravagant love that would give himself for pigs in order to make us his own, then friend, you've seen the Father. And little bits of that cynicism start to crack. And you begin to ask, okay, God, Okay, okay, God, I trust you. Friend, this is the time for you in this morning. And maybe, maybe you're like a pig looking at a pearl and you're saying, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this kind of kindness. Then friend, cry out to the Father. Ask him. Say, clean me. Make me new. Make me your child. Turn from my sin and, and I want to trust and depend on you as a father. Ask him forgiveness. He'll give it. Ask him for eternal life in Christ. He'll offer it. Ask him to be made new. He will do it. Ask him for a clean slate, a fresh start, and he will make it happen because that's the kind of God and father that he is. Amazing love, how can it be that God would send his son to take the place of pigs, to adopt those pigs and dogs as his own? Let's thank God for this and celebrate it. Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you that you were the precious pearl. You were the great treasure. Come down from heaven to display the goodness and riches of the Father, not to belittle us or, or to insult us or demean us, but instead to make us like you. God, if there's some in this room, maybe this, is, uh, this just seems too good to be true. Lord, we would confess it. It seems like folly. Thank you for bringing them here. I pray that they would confess that today. I pray that even now they would, this is foolish. This seems silly. And might they experience the miracle of what happens when you begin to meet them and greet them and be present with them when we confess that. Maybe for the first time, maybe some in this room would ask for spiritual eyes. God, make me new. Make me to see this. Make me to understand what you've done for me. Maybe for the rest of us, we've just simply occupied a space of judgment towards people that we think we're better than them, rather than realizing the great mercy and grace that you've shown us to draw us out of the pig, out of the pig slop. Thank you for that mercy. Help us to have that flow through us to others. Maybe for some of us, we've just become cold and hard to truth, and we like pigs, are snapping out against treasure. Help us to be softened this morning, to receive divine truth of encouragement, of rebuke, of exhortation, of instruction. Help us to receive it as those whose nature has been changed. Lastly, Father, help us to cry out to you. Help us to ask in faith, knowing that you will give us all that we need. Lord, it doesn't seem like that right now. Give us not a rational or logical perspective on these things, but give us an otherworldly faith that we can look right past the pain and suffering of our circumstances and realize there's a good Father who will not withhold these good things from us. Help us to see a Father in whom there is no shadow of turning. Help us to know that Father in the work of Jesus Christ. Help us to exalt Him now as we turn to Him in worship and confession and receive absolution and comfort and the acceptance that comes from a loving father who sends his own to draw us back to him. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.